Right, as you can see from the, the title of the sermon, The Divine Purpose of Evil, is, is actually quite a provocative title for a sermon. And it, but you'll see as I go through why I chose it. And it's a do with evil, and it's a topic that needs addressing as many people struggle with the issue of pain, suffering, and with the issue of evil in this world, and wonder how a loving God would allow the presence of... Hector's already, haven't even started. (laughs) And how a loving God would allow the presence of evil in his perfect world. And many of this, many people use this issue of evil to justify their unbelief. And they even accuse God of being an evil tyrant, so justifying their hatred of God. Now the key verse I'm using in this sermon is 2 Corinthians 4.17. And keep this verse in mind as we go through it. So 2 Corinthians 4.17 reads, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, there is this paradox that goes as follows. If God is willing to prevent evil, but is not able to, then he is not all-powerful. If he is able to prevent evil, but is not willing to, then he is not all-good. But if he is both willing and able to prevent evil, then why is there evil and suffering in the world? Now, this isn't really a paradox, for the first two are clearly wrong. So that just leaves the third one, which is why does God allow evil and suffering if he can prevent it? And this is what we're actually looking at today. Now we know that evil didn't come from God. God didn't create evil for God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. And as James said, God cannot be tempted nor does he tempt others. So if God is perfectly good, if the very essence of his being is goodness and his finished creation was pronounced very good, how did evil come in? And why did God allow it and allow it to continue? And if he allowed it, surely there must be a reason for that. But for what purpose would he do so? Since God is not evil and didn't create evil, but allowed evil to continue, is there then a divine purpose for evil? Now understand that there is a difference between allowing something and condoning something. They're not the same thing. You see, you can allow something to happen for your own reasons, but you certainly don't condone what is done. An example would be, when our children were young, we allowed them a certain (coughs) autonomy to keep their rooms as they see fit to allow a certain amount of free will to be expressed. But I can tell you, I certainly didn't condone how those rooms looked at times. But we allowed the exercise of free will for a definite purpose, even though I could have stepped in and intervened. 
If God then allows something but doesn't condone it, why is that? Why not just prevent that action that he doesn't condone? Which is what people who use this argument to deny God's existence are saying. Well, if you give a creature a free will, then you must allow them to express it, even if it's not in a way you condone. Otherwise it's not free will, and we'd be nothing but robots doing what we are programmed to do. And how can you have any sort of relationship with a robot that you have programmed? Imagine if you programmed your computer to say, I love you, every day. How totally meaningless that would be. No, for love to have any value at all, both parties must enter into it of their own free will, and to be able to express their love freely, to have any meaning and worth. Also, both must freely enter into the relationship, but also must be free to leave, or it's not free will. And the only love worth having is a love that is freely expressed between the two. But that same free will also allows the possibility that one may not do what you condone, but from love is something that you allow. Now C.S. Lewis said, If a thing is free to be good, it's also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automa, of creatures that work like machines, would be hardly worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared to which the most rapturous love between a man and woman on this earth is mere milk and water and for that they must be free. So maybe there is a reason and purpose that God allows evil to exist for a time. Now most people can see that there is something wrong with this world. That is not as it should be. C.S. Lewis said, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea what a straight line is. So what was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? So in that we can even see there is injustice and suffering in this world shows that somewhere within us we all know that something is wrong with this world. We know the line is crooked as it were when it should be straight. Where did this crookedness come from that we sense is so wrong? What a lot of people struggle with is that the pro with the problem of evil is why doesn't a good God remove evil from his creation? But they have little understanding that to do that would re mean removing all of us from his creation for we are the problem. You see, most people don't see themselves as evil. Maybe that serial killers are evil or this or that person's evil. But if we look ourselves at ourselves from God's perspective, 
We know we do things that God would not approve of, hence we're all evil. So to remove evil from his creation would mean removing all of us. But it's God's forbearance, that is, not judging sin as it happens, that gives us all room to repent. So if God removed evil, not one of us would have any hope. Most, I think, struggle with this issue of evil in this world and have an issue with God over it because at heart they want to justify themselves. Now, if, true, if evil truly upset them, then they would be grieved at the state of their own heart and they would see themselves as part of the problem of evil in this world. In the Nuremberg trials after World War II, what shocked investigators about the Nazis that perpetrated the Holocaust was how ordinary they were, yet they did the most monstrous deeds. And apart from the fear of God, we are all capable of the most heinously evil deeds when the restraints are removed. And if you cannot see this, then you do not know the human heart. God sees it only too well when said as desperately wicked above all else. Now, you cannot know what evil is until we have a standard of good to measure all behaviour by. And then there's a, and when there's a certain and absolute standard of good, then evil is shown up for what it is. And that's at the root of the hatred towards Christ. His goodness shows us that we aren't good. And that's why Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify, I testify about it that its works are evil. Now to understand what evil is, we need to know what good is so that we can have a, an objective standard of good to measure all else by. A standard of good that never changes. Now, if there is no objective good, if good is only subjective, that is, good is only relative to each person, then good and evil can be anything you want it to be. And we see this with the Hamas invasion of October 7th. Some people were actually saying it was good. But if you have an objective standard of good to measure all things by, then we can have a clear idea of what is good and what is evil. Now, there are many definitions of what constitutes good, and the best I have found would have to be that goodness is anything that God would approve of. And using that definition, it would mean that evil must be anything he would disapprove of. So if we use a standard of good and evil, it should cause each one of us to pause and reflect. For we don't have to look too hard at, at ourselves to see that we do things easily and naturally that we know God would not approve of, be they thoughts, desires or actions. And as most parents know, they never have to teach your children how to do bad things. They naturally do them, but we must put a lot of effort into training them to be good. And a child left to their own devices is not pleasant to be around. So with a bit of common sense, we know that we are not inherently good, but that, that there is 
within us a corruption that is capable of producing the most heinous evil, that our natural default position is to do wrong. C.S. Lewis said this, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting it, not by giving in. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. But though there is corruption within mankind, it cannot as yet be complete, for we know that people are capable of some good. And if mankind was completely evil, then God couldn't do anything for us. You can't do anything for a dead dog, you throw them in a hole. But in that God has made a way of redemption, it shows that mankind is redeemable. Now the Bible tells us how evil entered the world. When mankind first did something that God didn't approve of, and how the serpent deceived Eve, and she and Adam ate of the fruit which was an act of rebellion. But deceived or not, they still took the forbidden fruit which caused the downfall of mankind. For who is the serpent, and why would he do such an evil act as to cause harm to innocent people? It was a particularly diabolical trick he pulled on them, for they were completely innocent. They had no idea what evil was. For them everything was good, and the concept of one being long to another to cause some harm would have been completely alien to them, and they would not even had a, have had a word for lying, let alone know what it meant. But it was the act of doing something that God didn't approve of that allowed evil to enter into this world, and that rebellious act caused the heart of mankind to be corrupted in such a way is to make mankind capable of being able to perform the most wicked acts. And we know from the Bible that the serpent is Satan who tempted Adam and Eve to sin to cause them to be separated from God. And we know that this evil being was originally called Lucifer who was God's top angel whose heart being lifted up in pride thought to make himself God. And we read this in Isaiah 14, 12-14. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn! How you are cut down to the ground! You who laid the nations low, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, and above the stars of God I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. Now we don't know when this angelic rebellion occurred, but we know the temptation of Adam and Eve must have been quite close to the creation week. 
And we can see it was Satan's pride that caused him to rebel against God. For he wanted to be God, but his pride clouded his judgment, and he thought he was better than he was. For the created can never be better, greater than the creator, and that ought to be a warning to us, for it's pride that will cause us to think we are better than we are. So evil then is a corruption what was originally good. It was something that God originally made to be good, but through the wrong expression of free will became corrupted. And in the case of Satan, evil personified. And if we wrongly express our free will, then the outcome will be evil. And that is exactly what we see in this world. So even though many blame God for evil, it's mankind's wrong expression of free will that brings about evil. And the more that free will is expressed, the more evil mankind becomes, until it is hard to tell the difference between man and devil. And since mankind has rejected an objective standard of good, i.e. God, then they cannot even see the evil inclinations of their own heart. So even though Satan tempted Adam and Eve to sin, he couldn't make them sin. He had to get them to be disobedient of their own free will. And it is so with us. Though the devil tempts us and manipulates our emotions to cause us to sin, he can't make us. We sin because we desire what he tempts us with, which is why we are guilty before God, as Adam and Eve were. Also, Because we're descendants of these first sinners, we're also corrupted at heart and are incapable of perfectly doing that which God approves of. And that is why justification can only be by God's grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone. The question must be, Why did God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden if it allowed evil to come about? Well, if God didn't allow a way way of free will to be expressed, then it could be said that Adam and Eve only loved and obeyed God because they had no choice, that only because God kept them and they had no way to exercise their free will that they loved him. And this is, in fact, the accusation that the devil levelled against God in Job's time. The accusation that the devil levelled against God was that Job only loved God because God protected him. But we see with Job, when God allowed evil to befall him, it proved Job's, it proved Job's love and faith. In fact, Job, despite all the evil that befell him, said these most glorious of words, Though he slay me, yet I will still praise him. That is, Job would still praise God as a knife sliding into his heart. And this can only be because Job knew the goodness of God and knew that even if God saw fit to slay him, it's only because good would come from it. Never again could anyone, man or devil, accuse Job of loving God only for the benefits. Job's love and loyalty were proved beyond all doubt 
through what he endured. Notice also that God didn't cause the evil to come on Job. The evil came from the devil, but God allowed it to happen for a purpose. Now, most people here would have been through bad experiences, yet looking back can see the benefit gained from that bad experience. And are even glad they went through that experience but probably most wouldn't want a repeat performance. So the question is, is a bad experience that produces good, is that a good or bad thing? Now, the thing is, how do you display divine power? Maybe by creating a universe from nothing? How do you display divine knowledge? Maybe by writing down predictions for the future and then bringing them about. But how do you display divine love? We all know that love that is only expressed by words is meaningless unless proven by actions. So a good way would be by taking on flesh for the express purpose that the divine may be able to die for sinners, to make atonement for their sin. Jesus said that the greatest love is to lay down your life for your friend, and most would agree that this is indeed true. If your friend took a bullet meant for you, that would impress you of their love. But how much greater is it if you lay down your life for your enemies? Yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This then is how divine love is displayed. And we, the recipients of such love, will for all eternity be a witness of the divine love of God. And it can only be love that would cause God to care for his silly sheep. Now if God displayed and proved his great love at the cross, how do we, the benefactors of his love, respond and show our love for God? Jesus said, those that love me keep my commandments. So it's by obedience. And it's not the obedience of just keeping rules, but it's obedience of faithfulness to what is asked. And it's done from a love for the one who asks. And for it to have any meaning whatsoever, it must be obedience that is freely done. It cannot be imposed. For if you force someone to obey you, that's not love. We show our love and obedience no matter what happens, no matter what trials and testings and evil we face. When we hold fast to him and can even say in those times, though they will slay me, yet I will praise you. In that endurance... We're showing our love for Christ. Now, with a newly married couple, their love for one another isn't proven. Though they may say and even mean that they love each other, that love isn't proven to be true. There's only words. It's only as they do life together and face difficulties together, and if they don't allow those difficult experiences to poison their relationship, 
then that love will become far greater as it is tested and proven. And it will build, build trust between the two. So they don't, they don't have to say I love you. Their actions have shown that they do. Now it's trust that must be the bedrock of any relationship based on love. And trust must be built up and proven. And as that trust grows, that relationship will deepen far beyond what it was at the start. So can you see what will become of this relationship of proven love? A relationship of implicit trust between our Lord and his people. How deep it will be. How it will stand for all eternity. Christ who laid down his life for his bride and the bride that endured and was faithful out of love for her Lord. This is the divine purpose of evil. It's through testing that the love of both is proven and it brings about the greatest relationship that can be had. How close that relationship will be between our Lord and his bride. And for true love and proven love, the testing is a small price to pay. And this depth of love wouldn't have come about apart from the existence of evil. But God will not allow evil and injustice to continue forever. Once it's fulfilled its purpose, it will be removed. If Adam and Eve had never taken of the forbidden fruit and fallen, then all creation would not have learnt of the greatness of God's love. And the bride's love would never have been proven to such a deep level. And so the allowance of evil brought about the deepening of the relationship between Christ and his bride that would never have been possible without the existence of evil. God took what was bad and he is using it for the good of those that love him. Have you ever noticed that when the Bible describes a new heaven and new earth, there is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's no longer needed. The bride has proved her fidelity beyond all doubt through enduring evil. She chose obedience, and through that testing and by her free will, obeyed God, so there doesn't need to be a tree of testing anymore. So in effect, when a sinner turns from their sin to Christ, it's reversing that disobedience of Adam that allowed the entry of evil. So even though the, the trials and testings and suffering at the time may be horrendous, for the gain and, for, and seen when it's seen from the light of eternity, it will be a mere inconvenience and a trifle and will be well worth it for the gain of the closeness of the relationship with our Lord. And though we may not like to repeat the experience, looking back we may well say that this, that was the best thing that happened to me on this earth. So brothers and sisters in Christ, when you are troubled and struggling, just trust in our Lord who turns all things to the good of those who love him and endure. And in that endurance, show our Lord our love and fidelity. No matter what we go through, once we see and understand the gain in the relationship, there is through hardship, then that ought to help us to endure. For no other created being will ever come close to 
having the depth and intimacy of the relationship between our Lord and his bride. For no other has had to suffer and endure evil for the sake of the other to the degree that this relationship has. And without the presence of evil, this will never have come about. For our Lord showed his love for us on the cross in making atonement for our sin. And we, the redeemed, proved our love for him by patiently enduring trials and testings, so that neither will ever doubt the other's love, for it is proven. <coughs> now to finish, I want to read John 17, 20-26, where it talks a bit of the love and unity of God and Christ and our Lord's desire for us. In this prayer, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So in this verse, Jesus is praying to God the Father for those that come to faith in him. And notice what he says. He desires that his people will be with him, and see him in his glory, and that the love of the Father may be in them, and that we, his people, will be united with the Father and the Son. It's a true unity of love and trust. Now, too often I think people have this unconscious belief that God is making it as hard as possible for people to enter heaven, that he's looking for any reason to exclude people from heaven. It's only hard because we try to do it in our own efforts. God has done everything possible to allow all who are willing to turn from their sin to come and enter in. And in this passage we see that Jesus' desire is for those that are his to be with him. This isn't the words of one that wants to keep people out. It's the desire of a groom to be with his bride. We also that are his have a desire to be where he is. And it would be a most odd relationship if the bride and groom didn't have this desire to be together. And when this comes about, what a glorious reunion it will be. A unity of proven love for each other. And for that depth of relationship with love, any hardship is worth it. So in conclusion... Though God never created evil or desired evil to come about upon his perfect creation, and God knew when he gave mankind a free will what would happen and what it would cost him, 
but allowing free will to be expressed, hence allowing the possibility of evil to come about. And since it did come about because mankind exercised their free will against God, their disobedience allowed evil to come in. But then God used that for the eternal good of those that believe, and a relationship to grow that for all eternity will be spoken of and admired between Christ and his redeemed. And this, I think, is the divine purpose of evil. So we can see that this light momentary affliction is indeed preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now this relationship can only be for those that are Christ, who of their own free will have been submitting themselves under God. And if you've not done so, then you're still in rebellion against God. You are exercising your free will against him. Unrepentant sinner, you know you do things that God does not approve of, and you do them easily and naturally. And except for a restraining influence, you're capable of far worse. The day is coming when God will remove evil from his creation to that place that he has prepared for the devil and his angels. And in refusing to submit yourself unto God, you're making your position clear. Sinner, turn to God. Submit yourself unto him. Enter into that relationship with him, for he has shown his love by making atonement for your sin. And you are showing your hatred for him by continuing in your sin. Sinner, throw yourself upon the mercy of God who calls all mankind to repentance. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved and know what it is to be unconditionally loved and forgiven. And since his love is divine, it is very great indeed. And no matter what depths of sin you have plunged, his love is even greater still. And then you too can show your love for Christ by obedience and faithfully enduring. But you can have no relationship with him unless of your own free will desire to have a relationship with him. Love will have it no other way.